0: You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York, a community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. Good morning. So good to see, please be seated. So good to see all of you. And um, as Pastor Bill just mentioned, our relation, relationship now spans uh, over 20 years. My, how time flies. And I have always treasured the opportunities that I've had to come here over the years, at least once a year, and um, it's also good to see Mark, Um, our history goes back that long as well, good to hear him lead worship, yeah, really good. I uh, I want to mention to you before I get started this morning as well that uh, Pastor Bill and I talk on a regular basis. Um, I tell you that because uh, he holds a special place in my heart. Our conversations are rich. They're not one-sided. I understand that wisdom is not proprietary, that it is not something that is just possessed by those who are considered to be the sages of our time, uh, that wisdom is something that can be found in between. It can be found between I- in between the generations. And so I treasure that. In fact, he came to spend a few days with me just, uh, what, a couple of months ago, I guess it was, And uh, that's something that's happening uh, quite frequently now. There's somewhat of a shift in what we're doing. I'll continue to travel, but I feel like that in time that's going to become the exception and not the norm. Because my heart has always been to engage with people in ministry and leadership, uh, to be an encouragement to them, and to be a sounding board to them. After 44 years of doing this, I've, I feel like that I am legitimate in saying as the insurance commercial, I, I know a thing or two because I've seen a thing or two. And so we've been actually hosting, and uh, I don't know whether you're aware of this or not, but uh, your monthly support is a part of what assists us in doing this. We've been hosting retreats where we bring pastors and leaders from all over the country, Uh, Just this past um, month, we had a group. The youngest was uh, 60 years old, and the oldest was 72. And uh, the intention for that particular retreat was to... uh, And I want you to understand that when we gather them together, it's not just so that they can hear me pontificate. Um, I, I open it up and give them an opportunity in a safe space... To talk about where they are in their journey, and the emphasis in this one was to encourage them that you're you're not dead, so you're not done. I know that sounds crass, uh, because many of them are in transitional places. Uh, many of them are now transitioning out of their senior leader roles. Um, they're in the midst of that. Some of them. Uh, they're in the wake of that, and uh, they're questioning uh, where they are and who they are and what they should be doing, and I I think you probably understand the value of that now more than ever before, and so that's what we're committed to. This fall, we'll probably host about three of these retreats, uh, younger couples as well, so be in prayer for us. We appreciate you taking time to endure that advertisement that I just shared with you? Now, there was some discussion yesterday about my inability to be brief in preaching. And uh, it's probably based on all the visits that I've made over the last two decades here. I actually have that aptitude, as shocking as that may sound, I understand that verbosity does not necessarily equate to something that has any gravity to it whatsoever. You know, Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address was only 272 words, and it took him two minutes to deliver it, but it lives now as one of the most pivotal and seminal uh, speeches that that was ever given. I have more than 272 words today. And so I, I want to I try my best to get busy here. Um, I want you to know in the future that uh, I am capable of delivering a homily, a message that is about 20 minutes in length because I've been doing it lately. That's shocking, isn't it? The days of miracles are not over. But at the encouragement of your dear pastor... I'm not going to do that today. I'd like for you, if you would, to turn to the gospel according to Isaiah. And I said that not just to be clever. I understand that whenever we think think of the gospels, we think primarily of the four given to us in the opening of the New Testament. But I think that it's true that there's so much of the gospel that can be discovered in the New Testament that was concealed that we refer to as the Old Testament that will eventually be revealed in the New. So I'm taking my text in the book of Isaiah, and I want to also posture your thinking here in the early going to understand that I am not intending on doing an exegesis or an excavation of the historical context of this particular passage of Scripture If I were to do that, we would be here for a while. So I'm not going to talk about the historical context, even though in many ways it warrants that. You can do that for your homework. But I'm going after something here that I feel like that is particularly relevant to the times that we're in right now. I don't know about you, but I am wanting now more than ever before, to have a relevant word, not just for the sake of relevancy, but a relevant word for God's people. Because in my experience, it seems that so many men who are capable communicators, competent communicators, are answering questions that nobody's asking. And I don't want to be guilty. I don't want to be found guilty of that. So in Isaiah chapter 45... Verse 3 says, I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hoards in secret places, the hidden riches, that you may know that it is I, the Lord God of Israel, who call you by your name. In verse 7, I form the light... And I create the darkness. I, I want to back up. I went straight for verse 7. Let's go back to verse 5. I am the Lord, and there's no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is none other. I form light and create darkness. I form light and I create darkness. I make well-being, and I create calamity. Those statements are very counterintuitive, aren't they? I am the Lord who does all of these things. Now, we're going to take a look at the import of what this prophecy contains in a few minutes, but I, I want to just talk to you from my heart about a few things. I read the other day that the human head weighs between five and 11 pounds. And in a recent study, it suggests that if you are for extended periods of time bent over looking at your smart device, that it's the equivalent of putting 60 more pounds of weight on your neck. Now, some of you may find that to be rather incredulous, but maybe you're beginning to see that that could be very true. What I take away from that is looking up these days when most of our lives, both figuratively and literally, are spent looking down requires an awareness of the negativity of gravity. The negativity of the gravity of the world that we 're living, and the Bible has a lot to say about keeping our heads up the psalmist david uh, he clearly says in psalm twenty seven six he says, "My head will be lifted up above my enemies above them those who are around me, yes, O oh Lord." You are a shield about me, my glory, the one who lifts my head. And Jesus even says, when calamitous things are on the horizon for his disciples, remember, he says in Luke's gospel, lift up your heads. There has to be an intentionality about it, right? Because of this gravity of neg- negativity that is airborne all about us. I, I just, I, I agree with the statement this is not the end. We, we are not coming toward the end, as many people would purport these days. I don't believe that at all. I, you know, seldom do I ever get in a plane, which I'm in planes quite often, and we get to the end of the runway, and I realize as I feel the thrust of the engines, and I settle back in my seat a little bit, and the pilot is taking us down the runway, reaching about 160 to 180 miles an hour before he can eventually get lift to get airborne to take off, that even all those all these dynamics are going on to enable us to get off the ground, that there's something I've seen because I've been in the cockpit of many planes, and I quite often will turn deliberately when I'm boarding a plane, I get on off the jetway, I'll look into the cockpit to see what is referred to as an attitude indicator. And it's this little plane on a dial there that is depicted on a horizon. It, is de- it determines the pitch of the nose and the stabilization of the wings. It's something that is a very critical part of the instrumentation. And so I know that when he's reaching 160, 180 miles an hour at the end of the runway, that that little adjustment is so critical to us getting off the ground. Now, the reason why I make reference to that, especially in the times that we're living in, is, is that, you know, from a very practical sense, one of the biggest concerns for any pilot flying into cloudy, low, vis- low visibility or turbulent conditions is that pilots can very lose the horizon. And they experience something, and some of you, this is not news to you, they experience something that's referred to as vertigo. You've heard that, I'm sure. And in that moment, they they can't trust their feelings. Their feelings are not altogether reliable. It's very easy for them to lose the horizon when flying into those uncertain conditions. So what do pilots do to manage those types of conditions? Well, they have to depend on what I just described to you, this altitude indicator. They train to fly their airplanes by instrumentation. Now, understand that in the early going here, this probably seems rather elementary, but that rating is called a flight rated, or IFR. IFR pilots understand their senses are not reliable, they know that that they can lose the horizon so no matter what their senses say they have to with intentionality force themselves to depend upon the instrumentality that is saying something directly opposite of the way they feel or what they're perceiving Isn't it true that what you focus on will always determine what you miss and what you focus on will become bigger and bigger I think this is a really important analogy for where we are right now as a culture. Some of you remember back in July of 1999, John F. Kennedy Jr. was flying a small plane, and he was an inexperienced pilot. He was on his way to Martha's Vineyard for a family wedding there, and he crashed into the ocean. Uh, He was flying at night with almost no visibility, and the investigators, I, I was reading this yesterday, again, the investigators believe that Kennedy had an attack of what's called black hole vertigo. That sounds pretty serious, doesn't it? Black hole vertigo. When your sensors are saying one thing and your instruments are saying something else, and a pilot is literally in the grip of this vertigo, and he can't tell whether he's banking or flying, whether he's flying up or down, And John F. Kennedy Jr. actually thought, as he is taking a nosedive, 4,700 feet per minute toward the ocean. He thinks he's flying level. It was tragedy, of course. The reason why I make reference to that is that it appears that the trajectory of the world at this point has changed our view of the future from a promise to a threat. The dominant narrative of what the future holds can easily suck you into this vortex of vertigo or futility that I'm finding many people are buying into. But I came to announce to you without fear of contradiction whatsoever that the future's not ours. The future belongs to God. In fact, I think you ought to I just feel compelled to have you to do an exercise here. look at someone next to you and say, "The future does not belong to us, it belongs to God." You see, if there was a time in the future which God had not yet inhabited, then that means that God is subject to time, and He would be waiting on time to happen to him. That's impossible. If God were subject to time, then he would have, time would of necessity be superior to God, and God would not be God. Your past and your present and your future with Him are all happening at the same time. That's why in another place in the book of Isaiah, He said He declares the end from the beginning. Some of you that have heard me previous to this, you understand that that's one of my favorite texts from the book of Isaiah. He declares the end from the beginning. As human beings, finite human beings, we start things with the goal of finishing them, but God finishes them then he starts them. Thank you. God has already lived our future. He's seen where we are. He's seen where we've been. He knows where we're going. The fatalism that seems to be be, be so thick in the air these days was handled at the cross when he said it is finished it implied far more than we could ever fathom <laughs> i don't know about you especially as i grow older but i the, these feelings of fatalism that are is such an airborne disease that is trying to kill our will to possibilities dragging our imaginations down, I just cannot. I'm not in denial. I just cannot buy into that, especially when I look into the faces of my grandchildren. Are you there? I mean, one man said that fatalism is a lazy man's way of accepting the inevitable, Your mind is either your enemy or your friend. And I tell you, this is no time to lose your mind. I mean, whenever I hear people talk about peace of mind, to me, that is an oxymoron. Because if you are in your mind, you're not experiencing peace. Because peace, and I understand that many of you are versed, and I know the Scripture references that you're going to. I don't have time uh, to respond or to rebut some of the things that you might be thinking. I will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed upon me. But maybe we have misinterpreted the intent of the author. Because peace and our minds... Seldom can inhabit the same space. The Buddhists would refer to the monkey mind. Uh, what do they mean by that, the monkey mind? That, see, you're, even though your body can be in a posture of rest, your mind is never at rest. You'll have somewhere between 60 and 70 thoughts, thousand thoughts, between now and when you lay your head on your pillow tonight. And so this monkey mind, to me, depicts how that there's these thoughts that are swinging from one branch to the other in constant chatter, and it's exacerbated, isn't it, by the talking heads that we subject ourselves to. So again, when, you, when you're in your mind, you're hardly ever at peace, and when you're not at peace, you're probably only in your mind. i um I really do believe that and and I know that with some people they would they would think that this is some sort of denial of reality when it seems like you know our economy is in free fall. Uh, the political environment is imploding. Uh, it seems like that whenever we get up every morning, something new has been added to this narrative, correct? And to talk in these terms might seem like just total denial to some people, but you do understand that your mind loves to rehearse its fears, both real and imaginary. Your mind recalls hurtful things that have happened in the past. Your mind creates disastrous what-if scenarios of the future. When peace is a person... It's understanding uh, his pervasive pre- pre- his pervasive presence. If I were to ask you this morning, do you believe in God? I would get you know a unanimous yes. You do believe in God, but the truth is, you, you believe your beliefs about God. You don't believe God, and there's a vast difference. You know, when we can't find an explanation. We usually, our default setting is an accusation. God is not under any obligation to dispel all the mystery that we might be wrestling with. For years, I subscribed to the, to the idea because of the culture that I came up in, especially in the early years of my spiritual formation, I subscribed to the idea that the opposite of faith was doubt I've since come to believe that the opposite of faith is not necessarily doubt, but is certainty. And I know, again, it seems illogical to most of you, but if you are experiencing a great deal of uncertainty right now, then you're getting an upgrade in the curriculum of faith. I mean, uh, one of the most referenced scriptures that I've been hearing, especially in the last couple of years or so, it's almost the default setting of most believers, is Romans 8.28, For we know all things work together for the good for them that love the Lord and are the called according to His purpose. And I get that because the inference is, is that God is in control in the way that we perceive Him to be in control. It's important, though, to take that soundbite in, in its broader context and go back at least to verse 15 when Paul says, For I consider not the sufferings of this present time to be worthy of the glory that is to be revealed, to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed. I mean, that gives you a total different understanding and interpretation, doesn't it, in verse 28? Because he goes from there into talking about all of... I mean, he talks in very... Uh, graphic terms about all of creation is groaning and in travail we are groaning within ourselves in earnest expectation of the manifestation not of the son of God but of the sons of God it's like we hear so many people refer to these as being apocalyptic times and I know this is nothing new to most of you but you know, sometimes I, I really get peeved at the misuse of the word apocalyptic. Even in the movie industry, when we hear the word, this movie is an has an apocalyptic theme to it. We it, it it creates this foreboding feeling that there's something out there on the horizon, cataclysmic in nature, that we are all hurling toward, that is signaling the end of the world as we know it. And the word apocalyptic has never meant that. It is always had the connotation of an unveiling. And we certainly are living in a time of unveiling and self-discovery and God-discovery. We're dealing with what a lot of the theologians refer to consistently that has to do with this concept of theodicy. We come to all these ridiculous conclusions about the nature and intention of God when things don't happen the way that we thought that they should happen. And most of the time, if you're experiencing disappointment right now, I mean, if you're harboring and you're unwilling to give voice to it, you're harboring disappointment in God. Your disappointment is not in God. Your disappointment is in your expectations of Him. This has been consistent with humanity since the beginning. I thought surely it would be this way. And so what you're learning to do... Is to learn. Uh, you're learning to navigate the dark. And what you, what what I want to encourage you with here is that you're going to make discoveries in the dark that you could have never found in the light. There will be riches. They're waiting there. They're concealed there. <laughs> because the word together that he uses in eight twenty eight is the word synergy. Our, our, our English word synergy. And it has to do with, under. please hear this, it has to do with understanding how things fit together that seem to be incongruent with one another. Most of what is happening right now in this particular country or globally for that matter is totally incongruent with what we hold to be true in Scripture. I mean, how many of you know what it's like. I mean, you you understand the frustrating frustration of putting together because that's what the word synergy means, together. Putting together a puzzle that's way above your pay grade. Anybody? I mean, you know what it's like. You you're walking through the store minding your business and and you see a puzzle there. A puzzle box is what you see. And the puzzle box depicts, you know, this beautiful landscape or whatever. It's glossy and full color. And out of impulse, you buy it, forgetting that when you get this 3,000-piece puzzle home, and you pull the cellophane away, and you open the box, and you look inside at the contents, how disheveled they are, And now you're in this painful, tedious process of trying to understand what fits where. I don't have the grace for any of that, by the way. Never have. Let me tell you about the world's most, I read about this just the other day, the most difficult jigsaw puzzle. It was designed by a Japanese manufacturer. It only cost 30 bucks. It isn't difficult because it has so many pieces. It only has 1,000 pieces, and that pales in comparison to the world's largest monster puzzle, which is 551,000 pieces. Can you imagine? So why is it so difficult? Puzzle is difficult because it consists of one single color black. Another reason why it's difficult is because it requires the nimblest of hands because the pieces are almost micro pieces. One master worker of puzzles. An expert said it took him seventeen months to complete just half of the puzzle. He came away saying that it was the devil incarnate. <laughs> Why is that different than any other puzzle? Well, there's no pattern. There's, there's no pattern, there's no structure, there's no way to, to even have a clue as to how the pieces might fit together sounds very similar, doesn't it, to where maybe many of you are right now, where I seem to be most most of these days. I understand that very clearly. But what does that have to do with the text that we just read to you? Because he talks about what I wanted to really get to is what he talks about in verse 3, the treasures that are hidden in the darkness. Unless I miss my guess, most of the people in this audience here today you grew up hearing that darkness, that the connotation of darkness is always associated with the diabolical and the deceptive. Correct? It had to do with the diabolical, the deceptive. It had to do with spiritual ignorance. But maybe we've missed something because there's over a hundred references to darkness in Scripture that have absolutely nothing to do with the diabolical or the deceptive. Remember there... In verse 7, he says, I form the light and create the darkness. But with all those references, the verdict is usually unanimous darkness is bad news. Yet, even in the Bible, that's not the whole story about darkness. I mean, I'm not going to assume anything here about what your understanding of darkness, but this book itself opens under the cloak of unmitigated darkness in the beginning. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And when God, the Spirit of God began to move, and He said, let there be light, this is before the illumination that He created in the universe. This is a different form of light that He's making reference to altogether. And then when you proceed into the creative days... Many of you are already aware that those days are not reckoned in the same way that we reckon our days from morning to evening. All of them, every creative day, is from evening to morning, not morning to evening. It's a totally different rhythm, isn't it? You say, Well, you're talking about, you know, the account that is given to us in, in Genesis concerning creation. No, I'm talking about though we may find ourselves stumbling and groping. In a very dark season right now, it may be that we are actually headed toward a new dawn. Would would anybody agree that that's a possibility? So, in the Genesis, the day doesn't start with the sunrise, it starts with the sunset. It's in the dark nights that the new dawns are found. Where many of you are right now. And and I do believe without question that all spiritual progress takes us not in the direction of knowing, but not knowing. What was it, Bonaventure or somebody of that caliber that made the statement, he says, when you get to the end of what you know that's where you're going to find God. You don't seem to be very encouraged by that statement. (laughs) Spiritual progress takes us not in the direction of knowing, but in the direction of not knowing. Spiritual progress, to me, this is what it looks like. First knowing, then not knowing, then a new knowing. Walter Brueggemann would talk about in his commentary of the Psalms, that the Psalms can basically be categorized in this manner, that there's an orientation, a disorientation, and a reorientation, or order, disorder, and reorder. And we're in that parentheses, we're in the middle, we're in that transitional place, I believe right now with all of my heart, where it's disorienting, where it's disorder. And many people are languishing under uh, really a condition called nostalgia. I mean, how many times have, do I hear people say, you know, when, when are we going to return to normal? And I just, I just don't think that it's going to be a factory reset at all. I really don't. It would really be doing a disservice to us if there was some sort of proverbial factory reset And when I use the word nostalgia, most of you, I'm sure, are thinking of the word nostalgia as being something that is just reflecting on yesteryear in, in, in very glowing terms. The, the quote-unquote good old days. And, and you would not be incorrect in applying that word in that manner, but do you realize that the word nostalgia, do you know the origin of the word nostalgia? It's not an old anxiety kind of thing at New Year's. The origin of the word nostalgia, it was coined by a medical field doctor in battles during the 1700s when he began to recognize a condition among the soldiers that should have been healthy. They were being well fed and getting rested, but he saw them beginning to languish physically and emotionally And the word nostalgia has to do with being homesick or wanting to go. See, they would be separated from their families for sometimes three years at a time. And, of course, centuries ago, unlike now, there's the inability to see their faces. There's the inability to receive mail. There's such a disconnect. There's such a distance that is created that it seizes upon their souls. I'm seeing that. I, I'll see that on the faces of people at Guardia tomorrow when I'm getting ready to the board of the plane. I can see the nostalgia. And maybe it's because they don't understand what may be hidden in these dark places that we're talking about. When God called Abraham, for example, in Hebrews chapter 11, I've always loved the most definitive thing about his faith which most people would not consider this be the most definitive thing about his faith, is that he went out not knowing where he was going. Now, you got to remember the context of his calling. Remember that? Going not knowing? That's what he did. The context of his calling, he, he is called while he is in the Ur of Chaldees, which is the epicenter of ancient technology. If you've read anything about Babylon back in, in that ancient civilization, some of the technological breakthroughs, and I want you to see the application and the, and the relevance of this some of the some of the technological breakthroughs that they had developed centuries before thousands of years ago are still staggering to a lot of historians today. How on earth were they able to accomplish what they ac- what they accomplished because we usually think of technology in terms of the things that we call technology, but technology is not confined to modern inventions. So here he comes out of Babylon, this technological setting, and God calls him out of that, out of the ability to fact check, out of the ability to get clear answers, and he calls him out of that into the unknown. But see, the thing that interests me the most about this particular calling, are you guys still with me? That interests me the most about this particular calling is that Abram's journey was the first journey that went west and not east. Every other journey prior to that, when men set out, they were going toward the rising of the sun and not the setting of the sun. They were not walking toward the rising of the sun, the light, the new dawn. They were walking in the opposite direction. That's what Abram is doing. And this represents to me a very significant shift, moving him in the opposite direction of the light of the sun. If we're walking by faith and walking in the steps of of Abram, then maybe we ourselves are doing the same thing. We're walking away from uh, the technology that we have known into something that is entirely new. Man, if the church is ever needed, as uh, Brueggemann talks about, a prophetic imagination, it needs it now. Most Most of what we have interpreted even from the Old Testament prophets has had an extremely negative tone to it when in reality the prophets of the Old Testament were inviting the exiles and those coming out of exile, they were inviting them to expand their imagination and to see something different than their present condition. If we've ever needed a prophetic voice like that, we need it now. So much of what I hear lacks... Really lacks imagination. It's just repeating the same. It's just falling into the rhythm of the talking heads in nihilistic attitude that will inevitably cause you to go into a nosedive. The hidden riches of knowledge in that text. Hmm. Are concealed it seems or they're in protected places in other words to get this knowledge you have to have access you have to have in our terminology a password you know there are certain things that I can access without any hindrance whatsoever with this marvelous thing called Google. It's a matter of public record. It's amazing what's accessible to you now, right? I mean, just in a few taps of your fingers, instantly, this whole world of information opens up to you. So it's because it's a matter of public access. But then there are certain things that you don't have access to so easily. I, I use that analogy because I think it's very, I think it's very close to what we're talking about right here. There's a certain security clearance that you have to have. There's, a, and maybe I should put it this way. And I'm coming in for a close here. I, I think it has to do um, with us really beginning to understand that there's certain knowledge that God has that is open to everyone but is not accessible to everyone because they are not willing to walk far enough into uncertainty in order to experience it. I, you know, I don't mean, mean that for, you know, because God is not, God is forever inclusive. He's not exclusive. He you know, yeah. I, I told the men the other day the only people that Jesus ever excluded were the people that were excluding. But there is something available to you that cannot be found back there. It's what he is talking about here when he said, "I created the light, and I created the darkness, and there are treasures that are waiting for you in the darkness." if you're willing to walk, as Abram did, toward not the rising of the sun, but the setting of the sun, which will take you into another day. Does that make sense to you? I mean, I I, I want that to be as practical as I possibly can. Uh, you know, the first treasure that I think that is awaiting us is the, is the treasure, and I know this is, this is going to sound extremely, uh, profoundly simple, to begin with, is the treasure of His presence. The inescapable, pervasive, whatever words you want to use, the inescapable, the pervasive, the ubiquitous presence of God. I mean, even for a lot of Spirit-filled people, when I begin to talk about the pervasive presence of God, it is difficult for them to perceive that. There is no way for you to not be in the presence of God. I don't care what your perception is because, in reality, your perceived, your perceive, your perception of the absence of God's presence is proof of his presence. I mean, David understood this. I mean, he had an awakening in Psalm 139, one of my favorite Psalms of all all time. I mean, he had an epiphany, remember that? In Psalm 139, he is just, he's ruminating, and we have the opportunity to read a page from his journal as we do on so many of the Psalms. We're reading a page of his journal, and he is sitting there, and he says, you know, it occurs to me that you know my thoughts before I have them. You know what I'm going to say before I say them. You know when I'm going to stand up, to go somewhere, and when I sit down... Oh, I mean, and then it just begins to evolve even more in his consciousness, and he said, you know, I could take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, and you are you are escapable. You're pervasive. And then he goes even further. He says, though I make my bed in hell, you are there. It's like I always used love to tell people especially that we're browbeaten with the possibility of backsliding for so many years that don't you ever turn your back on God. How many of you have heard those fire-breathing preachers? Don't you turn your back on God when in reality if you do turn your back on God, you're still facing Him because He's inescapable. Whenever we look at the, 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 the uh, dedication of Solomon's temple, that's just one example of many, but when you look at the dedication of Solomon's temple, the glory of God, the kabod, the palpable presence of God appears, so much so that the priests are unable to stand. You remember it in First Kings 5? And Solomon would stand up and he said, God, this God dwells in thick darkness. This God dwells in thick darkness. So maybe one of the treasures of the darkness is is, is a new sensory experience of His presence. I appreciate what we experienced earlier, but I'm beginning to understand that there is something to be experienced in the darkness that I've never experienced before. I had this experience several years ago. Have I already gone over time? Oh, I haven't? Okay. I woke up about 3 o'clock in the morning. And I, I'm very aware of these kinds of things because I understand that between... Between 3 and 6 in the morning is the fourth watch of the night, and there's significant things that happen throughout the Scripture in those morning hours that are transitional in nature. So I wake up, and I am wide awake. Some of you have had this experience. I mean, I wake up, and I'm as wide awake as I would normally be. at 6 in the morning, but it's 3 in the morning. So you know what I'm talking about? And I couldn't go back to sleep, and I'm laying there, and it's in the wintertime, and our room is pitch dark i'm at home and i'm compelled to get up so i slide my legs off the edge of the bed and try not to disturb my wife and i kind of you know i i know the i know the the, the room like the back of my hand it's my house but i'm still sort of gingerly walking trying to find my way, you know, and thinking, well, maybe if I get near the den, there'll be a hint of light. And now that my eyes are open and my pupils are going to enlarge in order to let in as much light as possible, because that's what happens, right, when you step out of light into dark, the pupils enlarge to enhance your ability to take in more light. So I finally make it into our den, and I'm sitting there, and it's really dark. I, I could make out, you know, the image of the TV across the room and some furniture and that kind of thing, but it still it was really dark. And I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, what is this all about? Okay, you have a captive audience. I was sleeping just fine. But apparently there's something you want to say to me. I didn't have any idea that He was going to reveal to me a new way, a new sensory experience of experiencing His presence there in the darkness of the morning. So I sit down in my recliner, definitely quiet, waiting. And then I could hear something that was not external. I could hear my heartbeat. I could hear the thrust of the blood coursing through, you know, my ear. You ever heard that? I think, what is this? I didn't realize it at the moment, but God was speaking to me. He was speaking to me in the dark. He was helping me to understand that there was a treasure that I had overlooked that I really could have never seen in the light of day. Because there are things, and many of you can testify this, that you've learned in the darkness that you could have never seen in the light of day. Why? Because you're blind to what you're blind to. A blind man knows that he's blind, but people with sight seldom know that they are blind to what they're blind to, forgetting that what they focus on will always determine what they miss. So I'm sitting there, feeling rather foolish, hearing my pulse. I sat there till the sun came up. When the sun came up, I grabbed my laptop. And I decided that I was going to go on a search. I didn't know that I was going to find a treasure in the darkness. And it was something about his presence that I'd never previously experienced. Because, see, you arrived here and started forming in the darkness of your mother's womb. Whether it's you or a seed that's going to be planted, if it is going to come into the light it starts out in the dark and it starts out in the silence and i begin to read and you would think i already knew this and some of you are probably already ahead of me because you're very astute people i begin to discover that in vitro during the time of gestation that the first sound that a baby hears is the it's own mother's heart and that the heartbeat comes before brain activity with the infant first there's the heartbeat followed by brain activity please follow this logic and so for nine months floating in that amniotic fluid all it can hear is the resonation between its own heart and the heart of its mother Until the time comes for delivery, and it's forced out of that world into a totally new realm, polluted with light. I've been there on three occasions. I have three sons, and I stood there and watched this marvel as they emerge from their mother's body, and they come into, some of you know what it's like. You've stood there with your wives, and these bright lights, and their eyes are squinting, and do you know what i discovered i discovered that in that moment when they emerge into this realm into this into this reality that the brain actually turns the volume down of the heart so that it is able to navigate this world of light and sound but prior to that while it's in conception the volume is turned up where all it can hear is that rhythmic heartbeat of its mother and its own. What did I take away from that? Remember what I said earlier to you, that the perceived absence of God's presence is actually proof of His presence? And maybe right now we are learning how to hear and to resonate with the heart of God because we can't see or hear anything else? One more treasure. I had three that I was going to share with you. But one more treasure, I believe, that awaits us in the darkness that we are w- find ourselves in right now, walking in right now. And I, don't, I know I don't have to elaborate. I mean, I, listen, I, I'm in a different phase in life right now, and I've never seen times as dark as they are right now on so many different levels and so many different ways. One of the treasures, I believe, that awaits us in the darkness is new experiences of deliverance. And I don't mean for that just to sound patently Pentecostal. New experiences of deliverance because most of the time those deliverances do not come packaged in the way that we thought they would. A lot of times it's not about a deliverance out of something but a deliverance through something. It's beginning to understand, you know, why am I, you know, Instead of this constant mantra, why am I going through this? But what am I going to get out of this? Am I going to groan through it? Am I going to grow through it? That kind of thing. Because whenever we get to the deliverance of the children of Israel, they came out under the cover of darkness in Passover. But when they make it to the Red Sea, it's still a very dark environment in as they are being pursued by Pharaoh that is trying to take them back into captivity and you remember the story as Moses is standing there on the rock and he says fear not stand still and see the salvation of the Lord And you got to remember that he has led them into a box canyon that has these high walls on either side so that you can't go to the right you can't go to the left and you certainly can't turn around and go back because Pharaoh was in hot pursuit so here he has millions of people that are pressed into this situation where the walls are coming in on them, and there 's something pursuing them from them from behind and Now they are at the waters of the Red Sea, and Moses has the audacity to stand up and say something that could not be heard, but maybe just a few hundred of the people. That he had let out. Fear not, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. By the time that rippled back to the people that were at the back of the encampment, imagine their response because they are not up there in that power moment, in that moment where all the energy was, where Moses was trying to mobilize the people to go forward. They're back here where all they can hear is the pounding of Pharaoh's chariots, their horses. They can hear that. Can you imagine when the word finally got back to the back of the encampment? What did he say? What did he say? What did he say? Where are we going? What are we going to do? He said, fear not, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Easy for him to say. Don't have time to go to the Exodus account and talk to you about that, but if you look at it very closely, I mean, it is, it is a, it's a passage that, has, it's a text that has so much texture to it. I mean, it's in high definition. and surrounds sound. You see the darkness. You see the trouble. You see the imminent danger. All of that is coming into play. But what they don't even realize in the deliverance that they're getting ready to experience, that figuratively speaking, God has led them into this narrow place, pushing them toward the breaking of the water with all this pressure behind them and on either side of them. And when they get out on the other side, he will call this entire nation his son. Because essentially what you're having, he is pressing them into the confining space of a birthing canal where he is going to birth them into a new day. We don't usually perceive things that way, do we? But see, the presence of God is in that, especially when the intensity, like the birth pangs, they increase with frequency and intensity. It's really pushing us into a new place. Abram again, he's walking in the opposite direction of the rising of the sun. A 75-year-old man, and I'll leave you with this, is having to learn how to walk all over again. I want to submit to you that many of us, I believe, are at that place in our faith where we're having to learn how to walk all over again. I'm reminded of that when I watch little toddlers. You know, it's isn't it fun to watch them? And uh, you know, they're the kinds that jump first and fear later, unlike us. You know, they when they finally get up. Well, that's somewhat descriptive of me in the mornings. <laughs> it's fun to watch them, isn't it? They're, they're trying to find their equilibrium. They're trying to find their balance. They're trying to find how to, out, how to distribute their weight to take steps. They've watched you do it involuntarily. They've watched you do it without seemingly any effort whatsoever and there's, they're looking at that, okay, that's how it's done, and they get up, right? But they don't, they don't fear, and the reason reason why they don't fear is not just because of the desire to fi- find independence and individualism, but because they just don't have that far to fall if they do fall. And when you're learning how to walk all over again, you have a greater fear of making mistakes. And the fear of making a mistake is worse than the mistake itself. Abram's learning how to walk all over again. I do believe, and I hope this has been at least somewhat encouraging to you, I do believe that as we are finding our way through the dark in the seasons ahead, see, most of us we don't even realize we're living in a lunar spirituality right now. A lunar spirituality. When you walk out tonight, even you may have checked to see on your weather app what phase the moon's going to be in. But see, when I walk out of here today and I look up, the sun is pretty much the same no matter where it is in the sky. But when you're walking at night, and you walk out, depending on the phase that the moon is in, it can be round like a massive headlight, or it can appear just like a sickle hanging in the sky. It can be waxing and waning. You don't know, do you, unless you have looked at what predicts it will be. It controls the tides. It c- even controls when the moon is full. You, you notice the, the, the behavior of people is different. You notice that that's when babies are born more. There's this gravitational pull. The point that I'm making to you is that I would rather walk in the light of the sun, but it seems like right now I'm having to learn how to walk in lunar spirituality in the phases and the changes of the moon, walking in the dark. But my encouragement t- taken from, from Isaiah is that there are treasures awaiting me the treasures of his presence, the treasures of new experiences of deliverance, the treasures of him revealing himself to me in ways that are astonishing. That, call, that challenges my beliefs about God that causes me to realize I've been saying for a long time I believe God when in reality I was just believing my beliefs about him. The challenges of coming to the end of what I have known and learning to embrace and living in mystery because really mystery in my opinion, is the only antidote to the mundane and monotonous things in life. So, Father, we sang earlier that you're a good Father. And sometimes uh, we make wrong conclusions about your goodness because we compare your goodness to our understanding of goodness. It's far, far beyond our comprehension as it relates to goodness. I ask for people right now that are walking through very dark seasons as it relates to their marriage, as it relates to um, the sustainability of their career. Why don't you go ahead and stand, everyone? as it relates to the sustainability of their career. For people here this morning who are dealing with intense uncertainty on so many different levels, may they begin to find you may 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 they begin to discover you in ways that they never thought possible we ask for you that in Jesus name in Jesus name amen thanks for listening to the Salem Tabernacle podcast For more information about us, including gathering times and our location, check us out online at salemtabernacle.com.